Welcome back to another episode of Seek Bytes, the engineering podcast by engineers for engineers. Uh, on today's episode, uh, I have Nick with me again. Hello. Will, as always. Hi there. And special guest, Troy. I was going to ask you before, uh, how do you pronounce your last name? I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. To be honest. Yeah. Um, it, people can read it. It's more the... fun when people make it up for themselves. Perfect. Troy um, Macarena. Did you just say <laughs> Troy Macarena? <laughs> That's, I've heard that one before. I'm sure yeah, I, I'm not going to. Yeah, Tor- you've heard them all. Tory McElroy is the common one. <laughs> That's the one that Dave threw out at the All Star yeah. Awards. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But no, it's Troy McElvina. I love it. That's perfect. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, so on, on reflection, Tory McElroy is probably better. But. I was I was just thinking that like, that's such a good name. It's <laughs> yeah, almost a superhero name, name. Troy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've got Troy here today to talk to us about tech health over tech debt, uh, something that you're passionate about. I think a lot of us are passionate about that, or at least I know I am. I'm always interested in understanding how we can uh, trace the health of our systems. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm nece- necessarily passionate about one concept over the other. I'm passionate about improving the health of our systems. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I want to make sure we've got the right language and the right concepts that allow us to, you know, achieve that. And I find that um, the concept of tech debt is quite simple. It's quite binary. It's either it's debt or it's not. And it's quite subjective. It's it's normally um, determined by an individual that feels a certain way about a certain thing. Or it's a loaded term to describe something that might be old or something I don't enjoy working with. Um, Mm. And, you know, they're not really measures that are important to the business. And so how do we make sure that we get investment and buy-in to spending time and effort to improve the health of technology, which often means eating into money that we've got to spend on value to the customer? Um, How do we get that buy-in so we can actually have the freedom as engineers to invest time and energy in these things? Yeah, it's interesting because um, I have I hadn't really thought about it till now. But tech debt for a startup is very different to tech debt for a massive company, right? Like the things that that are going to slow you down are going to be different because um, your pace is different, right? The things you're trying to build are different. Just before we get into like the the real nitty gritty of tech debt, do you want to maybe tell the folks what you do here at Seek, what your background is? My background's in software engineering. Been doing it for a long time. You know, I was reflecting the other day on how long I've been doing it for. Um, professionally, for about twenty-seven years. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've been a software my whole life, pretty yep. much. I, as an eight-year-old, um, I just so happened to a, a guy lived next door to my grandmother, who was very wealthy, and his dad was the CEO of some company. And every time he would get a new computer, which was like every twelve months, the old computer went to me. Um, and so, you know, when I, I got the VIC-20, then I got the Commodore 64, then I got the 128, then I got the Amiga 500, and it's even through that sort of phase that I got into programming. So, you know, I started programming as a sort of eight-year-old kid and, and kind of never looked back. But uh, probably in, in more recent times, when I say recent times, probably the last 15 years, I, I got into mobile apps very early. So. I'd, I'd been developing sort of Mac desktop software and was very familiar with Objective-C and Cocoa and things like this. So when the iPhone came out and it was pretty much the same software development kit, it was a very easy transition to sort of rapidly go into apps and get stuck getting things into the app store in the, in the early days when it was easy to build popular products. Um, so you've done mobile dev as well a little bit. Yeah, so a lot of iOS, a lot of Android. Nice. Um, oh, that's interesting. What sort, of, what sort of apps? Uh, so sports stuff. Okay. So you know, one of the first app that I put in the app store was an app called Footy Light. 
mm-hmm. um, which was the first sort of mainstream footy score, sort of live footy score and stats app. Yeah, cool. And so that was number one on the app store for about two years. Wow. Um, but the, the side effect of building apps at that point in time, and this is pre-AWS, was that it presented a scaling challenge that you'd probably never encountered before. And right. so you would, particularly in the sports field, because it was um, at certain times and it, it wasn't like e-commerce where you might just get people coming on site in pretty regular patterns. It was, you got nothing all week and then Friday night, your traffic spikes. And you know, in the early days of the iPhone, you put out these apps and they get pretty rapid adoption because there just wasn't any competition. Everybody and, had the uh, the lighter app, right? Where you turn your phone into a lighter and you like <laughs> blow on your phone microphone and it blows the lighter yeah. out. And the torch app. Everybody yeah. had that. Yeah, the yeah virtual beer. Yeah, hundred percent virtual beer. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I stayed away from gimmicks like that and made something useful. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, something but, useful. Yeah. Uh, and actually, in that sort of first one or two years of those apps, we went to about eight hundred thousand unique weekly users. Wow. And so, um, you know, pre-AWS and providing this experience that was, hey, I want to sit here of a Friday, Saturday night and stare at my phone while I'm watching the screen. And when I see the ball go through the goals, I expect the goal number to tick over without me doing anything. Yeah. And so the experience of, you know, streaming data at that scale, um, you know, bringing in the stats from like champion data, real time off the field, you know, through these systems and out to all these users, you know, took me down this path of, well, how do you build scalable real-time infrastructure? And, you know, pre-AWS means you have to figure out how to build load balances and, um, you know, implement your own elastic compute and all these sort of things. And so whilst my passion was I just want to see the scores and the stats ticking over in front of me, just led me down this path of, like, how do you build these consumer products that can scale? And, um, you know, that that's kind of where my career in you know in the sort of architecture sort of space i should have mentioned i'm a i'm an architect i was about to say yeah, um, i'm like <laughs> one of the things i forgot yeah. to do as the host is actually like mention uh, what, what role do you do at seek head yeah, of architecture so, right yeah, yeah yeah so my role is head of architecture you might call online which is our product space at seek um and so you know that experience means that i understand a really broad spectrum of technology concerns from infrastructure security data user experience, design systems, iOS, Android, web, um, all that sort of stuff. So I think that gives me a good foundation to sort of provide, you know, a holistic view of what we're doing in technology and try and provide that sort of leadership. So it's safe um, to say you've done your 10,000 hours? Yes, I if, think so. If you ascribe to that uh, ideology? <laughs> Sounds like he was doing yeah. 10,000 hours of watching football and, yeah. and testing his app. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe another sort of anecdote is, um, you know, I, I live remote. And, you know, I've been traveling back and forwards to Melbourne for like 17 years now. And, you know, pre-COVID, that was like 14 years straight. And I was developing these things in, you know, either poor or no network conditions. Mm -hmm. And so my development process and my architecture is influenced by unreliability. And so a lot of the things I've built, whether it be the sports apps or realestate.com.au or, you know, like Seek is like the architecture is influenced by having a good user experience regardless of the reliability of the underlying system. And so, you know, if, you, if you're a realestate.com.au app user, you might notice that you almost never, if ever, get a there's no network connection, can't load, can't show you the thing type experience because of the, the, the layering in the architecture that kind of makes that possible. It's good graceful failure, right? Graceful degradation, that's the term. Yeah. 
It sounds like you've worked on a lot of like your own apps and you've built a lot of things from scratch. So how did you kind of find an interest in tech debt? Like does it do those new apps still acquire tech debt like as, you know, compared to an, an older yeah, that's a it's a really good question. I was probably going to go there a bit later because, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, like, one of the benefits of having a structured way of describing tech debt is you can describe it upfront in terms of what you are going to incur based on the options you're going to choose in the path forward. You know, you can't build a thing and say this is going to, you know, option A is going to have tech debt and option B is going to have tech debt. No one cares. It's like option A has a security risk. Option B means we don't have the people to support it. You know, it's like, which trade-off do we want to make here? Which debt, which future debt do we want to incur, you know, in terms of health when we make these choices? And so if you have a, you know, a better concept, a more, you know, structured concept around what health means, then we can be making future choices at the time, not just assuming that debt is a thing that's related to the old stuff. Typically, people, when people think tech debt, they think of like bad code, but you've just mentioned like people as well, not having the people around or maybe choosing a language which won't have support in the future could be tech debt in the future, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I might just sort of go down the path of like how we got to where we are at Seek. Definitely. Um, so when I originally joined Seek, we were very early in the sort of mobile um, uh, development at Seek and we had these apps that were basically shells that had the M site inside the shell. So, you know, spinning up iOS and Android teams and establishing that capability and building native apps. Um, and at that point in time, like there's a lot of sensitivity around like crashes and performance and the mobile team had their own backend team embedded in the mobile team. And so they're building their own sort of serverless APIs that were, you know, this BFF backend for front end style architecture and and so you had this group of people who were so well connected and so in tune with the metrics that they're gathering around crashes and 500s and performance issues that they would respond to almost everything you know trying to get to this kind of perfect experience and that was consuming probably more time and effort than it should rather than sort of taking these apps that were quite um, basic in their functionality and, and, and catching up with where we were on the web in terms of functionality and so the original driver for us to sort of start to put some sort of frame around what we meant by tech health was not to improve things that were broken. It was probably to not make things so good. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we did actually at the time um, to try and understand like where the line is, where we should stop investing was we ran like a series of experiments to introduce, you know, artificial errors and latency and, and things like this into the experience and correlated them with the sort of conversion metrics. And so what we found was that we were over-investing to sort of, you know, in, in the health of these products to a point that it just wasn't impacting the conversion from a customer perspective, wasn't impacting engagement, wasn't impacting apply success rates, things like this. So we tuned our metrics at the time and, and said that, um, and introduced the language of service level objective to say that for all these different sort of measures, crashes, latency, um, uh, you know, error rates, things like this, there's a target we want to aim for and we don't want to be below it and we don't want to be over it. And so that sort of gave us this you know, mental model of like, okay, there's these different attributes that we're going to target and we've got a threshold of where we want to get to and we don't really want to go beyond it. 
so that we can invest our time and energy in, in you know, product features. Um, you know, that I think had a really positive effect in the mobile space and that sort of formed the nucleus of what we call internally a spread. And so spread uh, was established in about 2019 um, at Seek and it was basically taking what we had learned from that mobile space and sort of codifying it in a way that could be more broadly adopted. Um, and, you know, for the, for the listeners out there and maybe the seekers who don't know, like SPREAD, it's an acronym. The acronym is like S for security, um, P for performance, R for recovery, E for efficiency, um, A for availability and D for deployability. So um, whilst we'd learnt all this stuff in the mobile space, the other thing we were kind of looking at at the time was like how do we like to ship more to production. You know, we, we were still coming out of that bulk sort of deployment culture and getting to sort of continuous um, deployment into production. This is when we started implementing like the 30-day deployment. Yeah, so this is this is guidance. The, that's right? part of the D of spread yeah. Yeah. Um, is that you must deploy every system at least every 30 days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was debate around, should we have staging environments or production and testing? And, and this is where we sort of decided that if we can kind of tune things correctly and incentivize practices and teams correctly, then let's just go to production and make sure that we evolve our ways of working so that we can ship quickly, often uh, in a way that's um, safe, that allows us to roll back quickly with confidence um, or roll forward quickly with confidence. And so the, the spread framework was around uh, enabling people to ship fast and then to not overinvest in the sort of health of those things uh, and also not underinvest, obviously. Um, and so, you know, with, with, with spread, we, we have standards against each one of those items um, around where we kind of expect different things to be. So, you know, APIs, for example, are like, you know, you must be sub 200 milliseconds, crash rates must be less than 99.97%, things like this. Um, and, and that's, um, it, it's codified through our RFC process so that there's an expectation on teams that they kind of use that. What was the approach when you first codified those standards to distribute them, help measure them, help? I mean, there needs to be some sort of feedback in the decision-making process of going, hey, our spread metrics are looking bad, we're going to pause and focus on them for a little while, or, you know, they're actually looking too good, we're over-investing, we need to, you know... So that, that, that's a good question. Um, at the time, we were in the office. Right. And the way that we would sort of provide this leadership governance, you know, as a few of us, there was like the CPO, the CTO, um, the head of design and myself, we would do these wall walks every month. And every team in their neighborhood would have their product health metrics on the wall. And so we would walk around and we'd have these conversations around, oh, your applies are down 2% or, you know, whatever it might be, and, and have a discussion around, is, is this aligned to what your objectives are for the next quarter? And whilst we had the conversation looking at the wall, we weren't um, having that same conversation around the investment in, in tech health. And so part of, of spread was let's have a one-pager that mirrors the product representation of, of health in tech health mm -hmm. and we basically sort of started to demonstrate to people that if you print this out and put it on the wall next to the product health metrics while we walk around and have a discussion around sort of what your priorities are then the conversation changed and it wasn't just about where are we investing in product it was like the bigger picture of like okay 
oh, that's gone down. Your, your performance has gone into red. You know, tell me about that. Like uh, even a product manager could say, why is that box red? Right. You know, explain to me why it's red and what are you going to do to make it not red? Gotcha. So involving um, product more in the, com- or I guess, by showing up those tech health metrics, you can trade them off or not even trade them off, but assess them on an even footing with your kind of counterparts. And yeah, product. have a holistic conversation. Yes, yeah. Um, and so it, I think it was an incentive for the people who are biased towards the technology to put these things up mm-hmm. so that we could have that balanced conversation because it led to, ah, I, I'm now off doing the thing that I wanted to do. I've got sort of like permission and buy-in to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask the next question though. Mm-hmm. How has that changed now that we're not in the office and that you can't do wall walks? Yeah, so I think it's probably not as effective. Um, our, the, the equivalent now of the wall walk is our OKRs. Mm-hmm. So we do team-level OKRs and we publish those quarterly on Confluence. Yep. Do you want to explain what an OKR is for anyone who might not know so what that means? A, an OKR, so there's a framework called the OKR framework and it's um, like a cascading um, prioritization mechanism, I suppose, that allows you to take an objective, describe it in terms of how you would measure your progress towards that objective, and then um, cascade that sort of to the next level of the organization. So your CEO might be able to set an objective, which is increase revenue by $2 million. And we'll say, okay, we'll get, you know, premium ads will go up 5% and freemium will go up 10%, whatever, they're our key results to drive that. And that'll cascade to the next layer and they'll go to do that, okay, we'll we'll improve the user experience. And so our objective is improve the apply user experience to reduce steps and we'll increase the conversion to the apply button by X. And you kind of get this cascading. Um, if you ever want to learn more about OKRs, there's uh, Google OKRs Star Wars and <laughs> people describe Star Wars in terms of OKRs, and okay. in my mind, that's the way to really connect with kind of okay. I understand what this work, how this works. That's the Steiner um, School approach. Take a topic someone's not interested in, and then just frame it in something that they care about. Because I was not in like I, I was. I, yeah, OKRs, cool. But you mentioned Star Wars. I'm, like, I'm in. I want to read this now. <laughs> I'm like, done. Do, do do we have show notes in this show? Can we link that in the show notes we somehow? <laughs> that would be that would be very professional. We should. <laughs> it starts with like defeat the empire or okay. something. That's you know? <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, our, our OKRs, the way they work is, um, I don't want to bore the audience too much, <laughs> but um, we we have this cascading of OKRs and then that creates our sort of aggregate guidance for teams and then the teams then sort of take that guidance and um, define what their team level objectives and key results are. And they're split up into two parts. Um, in Seek, we have two concepts, shift the business and run the business. Run the business is the things we do every day, like tie our shoes and brush our teeth, and shift the business is the things like I'm going to go to the gym and run two laps of the lake and and, and whatever else. Um, and so the, those OKRs are defined in those two categories. How, how it plays into tech health is that one of the components of our run the business framework is that teams are obligated to maintain the health of their systems. And so... Um, the framework is a measure of how well people are doing that. And where we've kind of used that uh, at the sort of, you know, executive level recently is is having a debate around the splits in the OKR in terms of percentage. There was initially a fairly simplistic cap of 20% run the business. 
And the debate is, well, what's an appropriate level of investment in run the business and whether or not we have healthy technology is a good data point for whether or not we're under or over investing in run the business. And you know, so what that's kind of led to is this acceptance that we will increase, you know, capacity for, for run the business activities in various parts of the business. Right. And based off of the tech health metrics ideally. That's one input. Yep, yeah, gotcha. You know, so things like staff engagement and you know, things like this as gotcha. well. So potentially shifting that ratio on a team level, not not like on an organization level saying, oh, everyone does 40% RTB OKRs now, but saying like this team is in a situation where they need to spend more time over the next two quarters on their KRs related to run the business. Yeah, correct. And this yeah. kind of comes back to, I mean, what you were saying about the tech health metrics being more objective than measures of I mean, can you measure tech debt? You were saying before, you know, it tends to be very subjective, but some of the things you mentioned, you know, this piece of code is old or I don't like this sort of thing. I mean, I could think my way into constructing measures of that, but do you find that kind of inverting the framing a little bit and having it about health versus debt is more compelling to executives or people the people that you're chatting to about these sorts of things? Um, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, but if every team went to our executive and had a different frame of what health meant, they wouldn't be able to reason with the conversation. Gotcha. And so we need like some consistent frame that people already understand and understand the imp implications of. Mm is probably a good segue. So, um, you know, I've talked about spread. Spread's really what I would think is our sort of real-time operational um, health metrics, particularly in our sort of product space. Mm -hmm. um, but we have a second layer to this, which is called our tech health framework. Um, and the way that those two things relate is that, um, you know, if you think about spread, it's really the, the team on the ground, what do they need to know about the thing they own to make sure that it's running appropriately? and make day-to-day -day decisions about, you know, fixing a thing or optimizing a thing or, or adjusting their OKRs to include the right, you know, investment over, you know, particular quarters. Whereas the, the tech health framework, which I'll try and explain in a minute, is more the strategic view of health, and that's the view that goes to the executive level. Um, and the scope of that applies to the entire organization. So whilst everyone in this room is building the product, mm -hmm. Seek has a lot of technology that it's responsible for, everything from tapping your card to get into the building to provisioning your laptop to you know, facilitating sales and marketing and HR and all these sort of things. Mm -hmm. And so the actual footprint of technology is much vaster than the product space. And so you know, what our execs probably need is a, is a pretty simple view of given our technology footprint, help me understand what we've got and what it does, how critical all of those things are, who owns them and what state they're in so that we can make more longer term strategic decisions around where do we invest, what might we retire, which technology is kind of fit for purpose, which is not where have we got duplicate capabilities uh, and things like that. And so the, the, the tech health framework, you know, I hate to use this term, but it's more the sort of enterprise view of health, whereas spread is our sort of operational product development view of sort of operational health. And so um, uh, the tech health framework is made up of five pillars. There's security, there's sort of business and customer fitness for purpose. So like, is it even the right thing? You know, we might have, say, SAP, 
and our salespeople are like, oh, this is just not helping us get our job done. And we might then say, okay, well, that's of ill health and that might lead to a decision to implement Salesforce. Yep. Um, we have technical fit and technical fit is largely derived from spread, particularly in our domain. Um, but spread only applies to our domain. There are other parts of the business like Jora and Certsy and other places like this who don't necessarily have our concept of technical health, but mm -hmm. we still want to know what their subjective view is of the technical health of the things they own. Yeah, that's interesting. So we don't necessarily apply that model across the entire, everything that makes up Seek Co., you know what I mean? Like Jora and stuff as well, we, we're not applying that model because it doesn't make as much sense for them, which is kind of like what you were t talking about before that, what we were all kind of saying before is that um, tech health changes depending on who is the person having that conversation. Like you, your understanding of tech health will be different to Nick's potentially. Well, that's interesting. Though. That's going back to one of the the, the flaws you see in, in measuring mm -hmm. tech debt. I mean, like, I, I guess it's different here. You're talking about a business unit having different measures of health, which makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense to measure latency when you're talking about provisioning laptops for people. I mean, it does in some sense, but it's a very different measure. Yeah. 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 Yep. So whilst we have, the, in the tech health framework, it, it's deliberately subjective and it's only ever measured on a quarterly basis. It's not being measured day to day or, you know, week to week. Um, it, it's an input to strategic decision making. Um, and we, rather than sort of having the overhead of having to get the whole organization to comply with the same policies, it's basically a subjective layer over the top where it's like you tell us the way you reason about whether your things are fit for purpose or technically fit and give us like a, you know, basically a rag status of those things. Right. So it has to be internally consistent, but each sort of group is free to choose how they measure those things. Yeah. 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 And, and within our group, we've, just, we've decided to use spread as the way of informing how we describe technical fitness, which is just one of the five pillars of our tech health framework. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so the other two is, just to, to close that out, mm. is speed and agility. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's important that when we're putting money into the organisation that we're getting maximum value to our customers for that money. And the other one is supportability. So um, one of the things that I think caught us by surprise many times now is that there are systems that are critical to the business, whether it might be search or, or something like this. And we find that the only person who really understands how that work has just decided that they're going to move on with their career. Gotcha. And um, Which happened with search. Yeah, which happened with search. Yeah. Uh, and so I, remember, all of, I remember there was a few Scala experts. There was me, Neil, and I think two other people, Paulo. I think there's one other person as well. I can't remember. I'm doing them in a... a, in a disservice uh, that got pulled across just to be like, hey, we're going to rebuild this thing in another language. We just need to make sure there's some people who know the existing language while we do that. That was an interesting time. Yeah. yeah so we end up with this urgent six-month activity that blocked and put our unification program at risk to rewrite this critical system. Gotcha. And so we don't want those surprises anymore. Mm -hmm. So we want to understand the full breadth of our technology landscape and understand where those supportability risks exist so that we're being deliberate in how we remediate them ahead of them becoming issues. Yeah, definitely. And so where are we at with the tech health? I mean, the spread has been in place since 2019, is that right? Yeah. Where are we at in the life cycle of the tech health framework? So um, this may be one point on spread. Um, sort of related to your question. There's ever since the creation of spread, there's been pushback as to why it involves humans. Yep. 
Um, you know, people would prefer there to be a dashboard somewhere that's doing this in the corner by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, maybe I've been the person pushing back in that I think the value comes from the analysis and the conversation and not the dashboard. Um, so I, one of the main, you know, motivations for spread was like, how do we actually get teams talking about this stuff on a regular basis? Um, and for me, that's kind of the magic of it. Like, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the dashboard that I care too much about. It's that you as a team are forced to reason about the health of your things and write it into a document and present mm-hmm. it to your stakeholders on a regular basis. Yep. In a way, having some kind of like paved road dashboard system kind of, it breeds complacency because unless the thing is red, you don't think about it. Like, unless it's red, why, why would I care? Like, if I've been told, hey, there's a dashboard that tells you when something's wrong, if the dashboard says nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. Mm. But there could actually be performance issues that just aren't being captured by that dashboard. And then you start having document debt where you have millions of documents and no one's reading. Like, I, I think that's right. I think having a conversation about these things is really what, what brings it out to the open and it makes change happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, where we're at with Tech Health Framework. So the Tech Health Framework's probably a year or so old now. Um, so we're still embedding that in the organization. Mm-hmm. Given that it's like a quarterly process, you know, what we've been trying to embed in the organisation, just as part of, part of people's quarterly run the business objective, is for each team to conduct their assessments of tech health. Yep. One of the challenges we probably ran into initially was that in the sort of corporate space, there's like 400 things um, okay. <laughs> that you need to uh, assess the health of. Right. You know, but when you divide that by the owners, it's probably a manageable number of activities. Mm -hmm. In our online space, there is several thousand components, you know, whether that's code bases, production environments, applications, databases, whatever it might be. Um, And that level of granularity, well, to begin with, is pretty useless. Um, If someone says, oh, that that lambda is red, I don't think at the, at the level that the tech health framework is targeting, that's not that useful. Yep. Um, so one of the things we've had to do is introduce a new sort of abstraction into the organization, which we call a system. And so our language is that applications are things that we kind of acquire or adopt or integrate into the environment, like BuildKite and Salesforce or Okta or Auth0 or anything like this is probably an application and that systems are the things that we kind of build and operate and are typically much more fine-grained in terms of their components. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what we've needed to do is introduce this abstraction and ask teams to define the sort of clustering of the components that they own into systems so that we can then use system as that sort of level of granularity that we we report health on. Right. And does that map a little bit better to the corporate space in terms of the size of things or is it still? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Yeah. I think it's pretty similar. So, you know, a system you would have talked about on, on this podcast is the candidate graph. Yep. So we can all reason about that as a system, but it's got code bases, it's got infrastructure as code, it's got logs, it's got AWS accounts, et cetera. And and so we don't necessarily want that level of granularity. Um, So are you also saying that, um, so take my domain, for example, the the collection of APIs that take part in the process of purchasing an ad to be put on the site is one of our systems. It's not just the API that my specific team owns, but it's my sister teams within the Athena domain, for example. If you think of them as like a deployable unit in a way or something that sort of works together to provide a capability, 
and that you can probably draw a box around it and say that it's owned by a single node in the organizational mm -hmm. graph, then I think it's a system. But if it's if you've got a system and there's two or three heads of engineering that partly own different parts of it, then you lose the ability to hold someone accountable for the health of that thing. Cool. So, you know, you, you want to avoid, you know, spanning organizational boundaries when defining the boundaries of your technology. And you would you would say a good starting point for defining that boundary would be a head off from what you just said? I think so. Yeah, cool. But ideally more granular than that. Yeah, yeah there's uh, a definite deal of subjectivity to it. Yeah, but. as granular as you need it to be, depending on the complexity of your systems, right? Like we might have one head off, but we have very complex systems and it might make sense to draw m more fine-grained boundaries than that. But in my case, yeah, I think head of department sounds about right. Yeah, and, and asking the question, who owns this, shouldn't have an ambiguous answer. Yes. Yep. The next sort of hurdle for us has been around tooling and how we do this, how we operationalize the tech health framework. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had engaged a vendor to sort of help facilitate this process. And during that process, that vendor basically retired the product that we were using on this. So it kind of threw a spanner in our works. Um, and at the same time, you know, Tech Platforms was establishing its own developer portal using Backstage. And so we pivoted back to sort of Backstage to sort of say, okay, at least for the online sort of product domain, we will use Backstage as the source of truth of this data, of these, these system catalogs and their health and eventually project that data into the more aggregate view of health across the enterprise. And so, um, you know, that that's a process that sort of needs automation. Um, it seems to be a moving target for us to do that integration. Um, and so that, that I think is the current sort of blocker technically of where we're at in terms of making this process a well-oiled machine. Yep. Um, yeah, and just something we're focused on now. It feels like we have gone through several iterations of how to catalogue our systems, right? I know we used to have, I can't, I can't remember what it's called, the dot Codex. Codex, yep. that's right. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's probably one of the things that has shifted more rapidly than most other internal, you know, support tools or you know, all of our paved road systems, you know, they tend to shift every couple of years as technologies evolve. But I feel like our, our system catalog has evolved sort of more rapidly than most. The, the irony is, is like everything should have an owner and that owner should be capable of supporting its systems and that Codex was developed by the architecture team who didn't have the time to provide adequate supportability of that system. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, the other thing, I mean, having been involved in the, in the backstage rollout a little bit, um, you know, big props to the team that has built this ownership solution because the other hard part is, and, you know, Codex predates me by a little bit, but I think one of the assumptions made in Codex was that it will be difficult to figure out who owns this particular thing. And so we should try and infer in lots of places who owns this. And we should also sort of leave the door open to, you still had to have one owner, but you could potentially be picking from a couple of different people that were associated with a, a piece of code. And with Backstage, we've taken a bit of a stronger view on like, this thing has to have an owner. And the other thing that, and again, the team's done a fantastic job on this, we will have a list of all of the owners because I think as we've discovered and people ask this question in Slack all the time, you know, why can't I figure out who who is in a particular team? And, and the answer is because we don't know. <laughs> That's not all written down somewhere. And we have a view of who is in a GitHub team 
and we have a view in the HR software of who reports to who, but GitHub teams don't map to actual team teams and who reports to who, you know, having had people report to me and it breaks various things, it, you know, it, 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 it doesn't correspond to who's in the team. And so actually having everything written down as this is a team and then saying this thing will have to be, any piece of software will have to be owned by one owner fixes a lot of problems. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's, it's good to hear that, um, that the, the way we've kind of arrived there partly is, is in service of some of this, the, the tech health framework and, and, and being able to catalog everybody and everything. So would you say that uh, someone has to take ownership o- over the aggregation of the the health metrics? Like that's what this sounds like. That's what you're saying, right? Like someone has to be an owner. Like who watches the watchman? Someone has to own the thing that's watching over all these systems, right? Yes, and we've had many circular conversations about who who owns the owner and yeah. <laughs> who who is the it's, it, it forms a directed acyclic graph, and you can figure out who okay, well, who yeah, who is in charge of the tech health metrics? Who is in charge of who, who owns the system for creating new owners? Right? Who owns the ability to update the membership of one of these owners? It's it's a it's an interesting problem to solve, but it's definitely if you start from kind of the assumption that everything has to be owned and some things can own other things, you can end up with a nice, nice structure there that, that gives yeah. you the And what's the need. entity that is the owner? Is it a person? Is it a team? Well, that's and, a good question as well. <laughs> and if it's a team, like we actually don't have a real concept of team at, at Seek because yeah. our report, the, the people who you were, if you walk over to an area in the office and there's a group of people working on a thing, there's nothing in the, in writing anywhere that exists anywhere that would write that team down and describe them as a team because there's people from multiple reporting lines, multiple business units. It's not reflected in Workday. Um, the team names and identities we kind of make up on the fly. Really, mm-hmm. we give ourselves names. We identify as a a, a, a gang. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean the ownership solution is trying to solve that in saying that there are things called teams. And some teams can be owners of things, but maybe other teams can't, right? Because maybe there's just a team that's, you know, a strike team that's being put together to fix some specific problem, but that team probably shouldn't own anything because it's designed to be ephemeral, whereas this other entity is a team that's designed to endure. Mm. And yeah, it's been interesting. The, it, it isn't written down anywhere, but the solution is trying to write it all down in one place and have everybody use it and hang everything else off it, and we'll see whether we get there. But um, it... it, it it feels like it's required for some of this stuff because if you can't figure out who owns something or who's responsible for it, it'll just languish effectively. Yes, which we've seen many times yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Talk, yeah. Talking about ownership, um, there's a model like in our in our systems. There is some teams whose system is designed just to host other teams' stuff. So we have this concept of a repo, uh, the, a mono repo that just stores all these different UI widgets that we want to you know, distribute around uh, Seek's UI. Those widgets can be owned by individual teams, but where those widgets live within the experience is owned by another team. And it's been a constant challenge for us to work out who owns the tech health of that system. When it's our widget that's throwing errors, we don't get that error directly. It's coming through your system. Your system's throwing the error. So like you're responsible for the health of your system, but we're responsible for the health of ours. At, at what point and in what way do you draw that boundary using technology and on paper? Like how do you draw the ownership boundary for tech health in those relationships? Yeah, so maybe just some uh, things that are somewhat adjacent to our tech health framework is that we've also recently defined what our business and product capabilities are. 
um, not recently, probably last year or so, but it's it's a model that we all kind of like agree, agree to is the canonical structure of what our product and our business is and what it does. And we've graded the criticality of those things. And so as you can imagine, somebody posting a job and paying their bill is more critical than someone leaving a review on a company. And so we shouldn't treat those things as the same and we shouldn't invest in them as the same. And so we, we have now a criticality model that allows us to, um, you know, it's a bit of a segue from the tech health framework, um, which is this tech health tolerance framework, which given each of the levels of criticality of the product and business, what level of health are we willing to tolerate? And so something that's mission critical, we have a much tighter tolerance on its um, ratings in the tech health framework. You know, we expect to be absolutely secure. We expect to be absolutely fit for purpose. It needs to be technical fit. We absolutely need to have people who can support it. And it has to be something that can be changed at speed. Whereas something that's like in, an internal tool or, you know, business administrative uh, criticality, then it kind of doesn't matter as much. It can go down for a day or two days and yeah, you know, someone can go and have a conversation or move to a paper-based system, but it's not going to uh, you know put too much risk on the business of that thing's ratings are not at a level that say search or payments or something like that is. Yep. Um, so that's kind of allowed us to sort of then marry up, you know, what the business agrees is critical for the business versus how we define the health and where the health needs to be for the assets that contribute to those capabilities. Mm -hmm. As a next step is make sure we kind of get agreement to what that tolerance uh, framework is. And that then becomes an obligation of teams that uh, if certain tolerances go beyond that framework, then there's commitment to uh, prioritize that over and above anything else. Uh, an area where we already do this very well is security vulnerabilities. So you'll never ever have an argument about getting critical security vulnerabilities to zero over building a product feature. I'd like to kind of divert a little bit because we've been talking a lot about seek and enterprise level things. And I'd like to maybe get some advice from you on uh, some advice for architects who aren't at a, a head of level and, and maybe smaller companies who are who is looking at uh, you know, measuring tech health themselves and where they could kind of start and how they could build into maybe their own spread or butter acronym model, whatever you, whatever it is. Um, I think that'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, so I, hopefully our, our story is one that's incremental. Like it just kind of started by planting a seed somewhere where we had a need and that's where I would start. Like if, if you just if you're a small organization and you came to, you know, your team members is like, hey, I've come up, I've, I've gone onto the internet and I've found this amazing framework that's all bells and whistles and we should adopt it. Like you're going to get nowhere, you know. So I would sort of figure out like, is there an obvious pain point in your business? Like what is that? Is it that they've got a team that's over investing or you've got some critical thing that you think's constantly throwing 500s and, and let's like come up with a way of like addressing that and doing it in a way that you relate it back to what motivates the business. Is it increased conversion? Is it protecting the trust of your you know, customers? You know, what is that? And, and I'd say just find what that thing is and then build out from there. Like I wouldn't necessarily say go and get an off-the-shelf model of health. I, I would say start small and then figure out what works for you. But just make sure that it's always anchored back to things that the decision makers value, not the things that you value. 
and, and make sure you understand that language and you use that language. You know, don't don't talk about technical things. Talk about revenue, mm. trust, um, conversion rates, things like that. Um, that that's the things that matter. Similar to what you were saying before about how um, we took a sort of top down holistic approach, saying what are the things that add the most value to the business purchasing an ad, posting an ad, viewing ads. Like these are the things that are critical to the business. And in those areas, we should have, I guess, tight spread metrics. We should make sure that the system is performing optimally as often as possible. But in other areas of your business that don't provide as much value, they don't need to be as tight. And I guess that would be true for startups as well, right? Like anyone moving from the startup to, I guess, as enterprise, I don't know what, what you would call the larger scale version of business. Big. Big business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Making that transition from startup to big business. Um it sounds like, from what you're saying, you could make that same approach. Identify from the top down what what avenues of value your business adds, where you get the most revenue, that kind of thing, and then analyze your metrics from there. And I mean, that very much is the SRE book, the Google SRE book approach to setting SLOs, right? You start at what are the critical customer journeys, and then you go down there to derive, therefore, what technical measures do we need to keep things green, as opposed to the tech debt type approach of, you know, this component is written in X language and I don't like it anymore and it's not performant and it, you know, spends too much time blocked on the event loop. So we're going to do it to a different language. It makes no sense to anybody that's that's really making decisions at the upper levels of the organization. Yeah. And I know if this is controversial, but one of the things I hate is when people rewrite things because it's not in the right language. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the right language. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like, hey, it was doing exactly what it needed to do with absolute reliability and efficiency. Why did you have to spend three months of your team's time turning it into something different? Yeah. You know, Six months later, what's changed? Well, nothing, mm. but it's better. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not complaining about tech debt anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny because, like you were saying, if if you if a measurement of health of your system is accessibility to people who can support that system, then at that point when it goes red, when you're down to like two people in the business who know that language, then it's then that that's a justification for writing it into a new language. But if you've got if it's written in a language that everybody understands and it's one of the most employable languages that you can write web code in, what's the justification for rewriting it? That's right. Some massive performance gain. And you can call that business continuity risk if you need to talk to an executive. <laughs> yeah. Business continuity risk. Yeah. There yeah. you go. There you go. <laughs> How that, else would you approach that? If you only had two people in a company that knew this language and you couldn't scale, would rewriting it be the right approach? Or what, what other ways could you handle that? Well, we dealt with that with search, right? Yeah, you, you might first ask how critical is this thing. Mm. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, and you, you may retire the product. Um, yeah. I don't think we could retire search. No, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think we can do that. No, retire or hire, right? Like it, it depends. I mean, you know, we've and we've talked about this on the podcast before. So you made a very deliberate decision to go all in on TypeScript in most places, and but I presume before that, I presume one of the the impetus for that was also probably hiring in. I know hiring Haskell developers is tricky, right? And I don't know what it's. I think Scala would be mm. easier, but not probably as easy as people writing Java or Kotlin or something, and so. Yeah, has its benefits. I, I once wrote a controversial tweet. Actually, it probably wasn't one. Just um, <laughs> <Is> one. <laughs> I think the, it, the link will be in the show notes. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it said something like, there's no such thing as technical problems, only product problems. Ooh, that's spicy. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like what we do with technology and where we invest is in service of building a product that makes your business succeed and makes your customers happy. And, you know, if that's not the things you're trying to do, then you're probably a hobbyist, not a professional. Wow. 
doubling down on the controversy. <laughs> yeah. I can see why that would have been a very controversial tweet. I, I'm, I'm on the same page as you, but yeah, interesting. <laughs> nice. 